the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the 2014 psychological sci-fi thriller, Ex Machina. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the film. We will ruin it for you. So if you haven't already seen Ex Machina, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Fear sells, and fear of technology is a really big money spinner. It sells newspapers, 24-hour news channels, websites, and aftermarket programs to defeat the Trojan horses coming to invade your computer or phone that will steal your money, invade your privacy, and tell your secrets to the whole world, so pay up. Most of us understand that the increased reliance on algorithms to make our spending decisions is an absolute reality that we mostly choose to ignore or wryly make a joke of. While it's perhaps lesser known that cost-saving exercises from many governments are handing more power to microchips in defence departments, Professor Brian Cox, speaking on ABC TV, believes this runs the risk of removing human morality from the decision-making, posing a real threat to civilization. So what if we put a human face on these microchips and call it artificial intelligence, and then we model that face on Alicia Vikander? It, or she could well manipulate that human morality we hold so dear. Well, certainly half the population anyway. In Ex Machina, talented and intelligent programmer Caleb wins a competition to spend a week at the Norwegian hideaway of his brilliant, if barking, technology company CEO, Nathan. Caleb, I'm just going to throw this out there so it's said, okay? You're freaked out. I am? Yeah, you're freaked out by the helicopter and the mountains and the house because it's all so super cool. And you're freaked out by me to be meeting me, having this conversation in this room at this moment, right? Dude, can we just get past that? Can we just be two guys, Nathan and Caleb, not the whole employer-employee thing? Yeah, okay. Now, while Caleb might have expected a working holiday with good food, drinks, a little look inside Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, perhaps. It appears he is more like a prisoner that ends up testing the capabilities of a new artificial intelligence to its limits. And those limits seem a little beyond even his understanding. Hello. Hi. I'm Caleb. Hello, Caleb. Do you have a name? Yes. Ava. Writer Alex Garland makes his directing debut and has been heard to say that much of Ex Machina is just people talking in rooms. The Oscar for visual effects might hint otherwise, but the critics focused on the relationships between the three lead characters, or machines. Roger Ebert described the film as a classic, stating that Ex Machina is very much about men and women and how their identities are constructed by a male-dominated society as much as biology. There you go again, Mr. Quotable. Rolling Stone... Yeah, it's still going. Focused on one performance in particular, stating, Oh baby, you have no idea. Isaac's brilliant take on this bearded, buzz-cut and barefoot Dr. Frankenstein is a tour de force of shock and awe. Yeah, thanks for that Rolling Stone. It really is still going. 
Now, will the spoiler team agree, or will we spend the next half an hour or so discussing why on earth we can't have an artificial intelligence movie with a joyous outcome, creating peace on earth and goodwill to all consciousnesses, human-born or otherwise? One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. Later in the show, inspired by an unexpected dance scene in Ex Machina, we'll be taking a look at some other random dance scenes in films. But first, joining me in the studio to discuss Ex Machina are the always intelligent but never artificial Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Hello! Hello. Now, this film has been on our back burner since series one. Hey, yeah. Yeah. What are we on? Series seven now? Yeah. Series one. So it's pretty much, I think it was one of my first choices. So, Rachel, my question to you. Should we have started this instead of Whiplash? Uh, no, it's good that we've left it this long right. because we're more experienced at what we're doing. <laughs> and I feel like if we'd gone for this first, we'd have gone, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, I know, I know it's good form to go straight in and talk about the subject we should be talking about. I've kind of gone off Whiplash, you know. I was so enthusiastic about Whiplash, I really wanted it. I saw it as our first film that we, we should we should do. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is really, absolutely, it gives us loads to talk about. And it did, mm. but... Any time it comes up, either on like film four or something, I just think, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm the same. Not for me now. No. But it's not the same as for all our back catalogue. There's, you know, still oh, no. there's, there are still films that you know as, as we look through it. Because I was wondering if I'm jinxing any of these films by, you know, <laughs> well, going you did in the opposite with Birdman, didn't you? That yeah. Came up yeah, in your yeah, opinion. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So right. Okay. Where are we now with Ex Machina? <laughs> Rachel. Yeah. So Ex Machina. Good choice for this far into our series. Series I. Um, because there's so much to it. It's a very multi-layered, deeply thought out amazing philosophical thing that needs quite a lot of looking at and I'm, I'm still digesting I watched it yesterday oh. it, was, it was a second time yeah and I'm annoyed because I can't remember how I felt the first time <laughs> and what was a surprise and what wasn't so you might have to come back to me every now and then and go did you think that the first time because how I feel about it now is different I'm sure from how I felt about okay it well I'm, I'm going to trail something that I think probably about three quarters of the way through this program was, is usually when we start talking about the very end of a film mm. isn't it yeah. and there's lots to talk about with this ending so yeah. it might come a bit sooner uh, but I'm going to I'm going to blow this apart and blow the whole <laughs> thing apart I've not seen my theory on, on the ending everyone's got a theory I know I know I know but I don't know I'm worried about saying you're going to be a gog but I think you're going to be a gog okay and I've not seen it on the internet either. This is not something I've read on Wikipedia, which is written down. Original <laughs> thought, original thought. I know, original thought. Past the first page happens? of Google to look that up. No, 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 this happened in my own <laughs> mind. Wow. Andy, there's a real mood and feel to this film. Were you mooding it and feeling it and grooving it? <laughs> well, I don't think it's an insult to say in, in this real golden age of TV that a film is kind of like TV, and that's... That's kind of how I felt about Ex Machina, which I think is partly intentional because it has this claustrophobic sterility. And if you make that too big and too kind of cinematic, then you, you're going to lose that. And what, what this film felt to me like was an episode of Black Mirror. But the problem with that is that I don't really like Black Mirror. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, despite it being an anthology series, Black Mirror, I find it quite repetitive on the themes of the potential dangers of technology and it's like someone on twitter summed it up for me uh, when the new series of black mirror was coming out they said there's a new series of black mirror coming out soon 
Uh, for anyone interested, here's the summary. Episode one, what if Instagram could kill you? Episode two, what if your Twitter feed could kill you? <laughs> Episode three, what if your iPhone could kill you? <laughs> and that, that same kind of, uh, those themes about the dangers of technology, I feel that they're so played out and I sort of felt the same about Ex Machina. I feel that as a really intelligent script, which is often a pleasure to listen to and they really sort of get in there, but ultimately to me it feels like the same old themes being played out underneath again and eventually for me where this went the intelligence of the script kind of crumbles away and i felt it went somewhere a bit kind of predictable and silly in the end okay <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, I'm genuinely pleased because what we what we never like to do is all turn up and go yeah this is amazing isn't it? yeah <laughs> um okay well i've just I mean, i've just made a note here I do try to keep things on track here, but I've just, I've just made a note. I just, Andy, could you just read the, the, the top line of what I've written there? <laughs> Andy has lost it. <laughs> Mira, I mean, it's... I understand, what, I, know, I understand what you're saying. And I, I think there's, there's certain points you make in there that I share as well, because the point I raised in the introduction, and this is, this is a, a, a genuine feeling as well, is that, hey, I don't know, is there any story if we made a future that... a, a, a film looking into the future about future technology or even just the future that said, hey, things are going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, we got to today and things are kind of all right. Reasonably all right, actually. I mean, I mean, right. Do you know, I haven't seen the news for a while, so... Uh, Don't yeah. look. Oh, right. OK. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I must admit, the first time I saw it, and actually the second time as well, I'm, I'm talking about the end already, but the choices that she makes, I was really angry with her, not, not because she killed Nathan, but because she then left Caleb to die. And I was like, do you know what? You don't have to do that. I mean, there's probably lots of reasons it's probably been thrashed out on Twitter or whatever why she did that and why she needed to do that. And there probably are, there's probably rationale behind that. But just to be different, it would have been nice if maybe they could have gone off together um, with the trope of the robot is all bad and she's going to just leave them both there. Then it's a bit, I was like, oh, really? Just do something different. I think it's it's kind of unfair of me, really, to, to call it predictable because what it... Well, it was, and I, I find this problem with these tight little suspense thrillers, like these three-hander kind of things all the time, is I don't necessarily guess exactly where it's going, but I think, right, either this is going to happen or this is going to happen or this is going to happen or this is going to happen, mm-hmm. and one of those things does happen. And that's not me being clever enough to guess which is going to happen, but I'm still disappointed that I could work out one of the things. And it mm-hmm. kind of lays it out there for you. Yeah. These are one of the ways that it's going, so... Unless they can pull some sort of big surprise out of the hat, I often feel kind of that it's a bit of an anticlimax. Mm. Well, I mean, we are on to the end already, but while we're on it, I mean, it's, you know, let, let's keep it relevant. I was, <laughs> I was taken along. I was sucked in. I thought, oh, no, yeah, yeah, of course, they, of course, they, they're going to run away together and everything will be magical. Uh, so I was, I was taken by surprise. I was sucked in. But I'm, I'm going to pick up on something you said, Rachel, and you used the term and used it a few times. She used the term she is, is Ava... The artificial intelligence in this film that's been created, a she? No, I don't think she. She. I'll say she because yeah. that's the that's the artifice. But um, no, I don't think so because she's at the, she at the moment is oh. is using what she knows of females mm-hmm. to achieve her objectives. She has the knowledge of everything that's in Blue Book, every video, everything that's been written to deduce what she needs to use in order to get out, and what she needs to use at the moment is her being female being male wouldn't have helped her to get out being but she she was she maybe she's taken on that identity but she has been created it's only going to 
I don't know, will she then go off and create a different outer layer to go and achieve things she wants to achieve? See, already, mm. already we're going far and beyond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like, it is almost like the film, a lot of what happens in the film is irrelevant, but we do need to talk about yeah, it. Really so. <laughs> so, talking about like the like gender, and this is one thing that I, I really liked about this film, is that I think it really successfully dehumanises the women to the point where they're convincingly robots, because when... There's scenes of nudity in there. They don't feel at all exploitative. Mm. And I, I felt that they'd been so dehumanised that there was no kind of element of titillation there mm. at all. And obviously there's, there's an element that Caleb is supposed to fall for Ava to an extent. But for the viewers, it didn't feel like, you know, that, that normal scene where they just have a woman take a top off and you think that's there just for a bit of a cheap thrill for mm. people. It didn't seem like that at all. I was looking at these women... And they they looked plastic to me. They mm. look synthetic. Yeah. She became more alluring when she put on her dress and cardigan and her <laughs> little socks and stuff. And that she chose that short wig as well was quite interesting. Yeah. She didn't choose a long wig. It's more childish. It's more vulnerable. Um, and it's going to highlight her eyes that look doughy. I mean, she was very... When you watch it the first time and you think, oh, she's so lovely. Nah, nah, nah. And then you watch it the second time and go, oh, I can see what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with her doe eyes. But am I right in thinking there that I mean, Caleb actually didn't see those scenes? Where she was, was she somewhere else or could he see through the window or something like that? But it was before, the, you know, that, that relationship yeah, was true, built yeah. Yeah. before, you know, over a period of time while they were perhaps being filmed in the test things or when the test things were off, the power outage or whatever. That was when... You know, it was it was it was much more emotional than physical. I think, yeah, wasn't it? yeah. There was a lot of well, it was face, wasn't it? It was mm. eye contact. They were always looking because she always made sure that she was at his eye level. So it was all about the, the facial expressions and stuff. I think, and she does have those beautiful doe eyes, and I think there's something about that. And she looks very innocent and very vulnerable. Mm. I think we we picked up and we spoke about the visual effects in this film. Now, a lot of people have talked about, and you, you picked up on this, Andy, saying so it's a three-hander. Something, actually, I mean, I, I think I knew about there would just be, like, three main characters in this. I mean, in almost, in theory, like a, a play. You could maybe, maybe achieve it on the stage. That, I think, would put me off it normally. I don't, I don't know why. I just think, well, if there's no... Oh, there's no I'm just going to stare at the same three blinking people. I mean, you've got to be good. Uh, and actually, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it, you know, just the, the, those interactions between them all, the, the playing, will they, won't they, all this kind of thing. I really, really enjoyed that. And so a lot of people did talk about, you know, the interaction between people. And I think there were, there were gasps and people were surprised in the same year as The Force Awakens. Hello, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac about visual effects and saying, yeah. you know, they are. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They were very, very subtle in mm. this film, weren't they? Yeah. You know, Star Wars blows your brains out with it, doesn't it? And says, <laughs> look, here we are. Um, da, 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 here we are. Da, 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 here we are. <laughs> Whereas these just go... Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important <laughs> thing, and I think that's... We're actually real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really impressive that they... I think when you're looking to give a visual effects Oscar, you, you shouldn't just be looking for who's done the, the biggest, most kind of punch-you-in-the-face amazing <laughs> kind of effects. It should, it should be how they've been used and how, how they play out in the film that they're in. And the, for the way the effects are used in this are perfect for the sort of film it is. And so I do feel watching this, I'm, I'm sort of quietly more impressed by what's going on the screen than, than a big thing like Star Wars where you expect that and you get it. No, definitely. I think because I watched a few making of things in the wee, hours of the wee small hours of this morning and um, they were talking about how the costume people worked very closely with the, with the VFX people because her costume had to be able to speak to the visual effects a bit about how it's going to go. And um, Alex Garland did drawings of it, so it really was a, a combined effort. Yeah. 
which I think is probably quite unusual for a director and the writer to also draw and have a say on the costumes, which then also fed into the visual effects. But it was just so beautifully done, and they'd looked at how like the innards of a, of a, of a human, what it would look like, and then mirrored it, and that particular mesh that's on her costume, that's really hard to achieve, yeah. really hard. And it looks fantastic. And then how they built up the skin over the, the of her face over the top and and it was just such a beautiful thing. I think they were all trying to create something beautiful. Almost in a way like creating Ava really. And it would just work amazingly well. I agree with you. I actually said to Tim last night when we finished watching it, you could do it on the stage. You could do it on the stage because it is a three a three hander. And actually the visual effects you don't have to have them. Mm-hmm. You could still just have a couple of bits or, or a light or something just to give <laughs> yeah. an indication Big that she's not real. Box on Big cardboard box, metal <laughs> Mickey styling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you didn't have to have that. So that proves to me the strength of the writing and the strength of the storytelling. I think the storytelling in this is incredibly strong. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, in fact, I see, as well as writing down on my little pad here that Andy's completely lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I've made a note about... I think it's definitely written down somewhere or one of the reviews someone says and I think it, we might be even guilty of thinking about saying this it's a film about ideas <laughs> and I also thought well what does that mean <laughs> of course it's about ideas of course it's about ideas everything's about ideas I think most films are about ideas aren't yeah. they really or, or they're about history well, it's lazy isn't it but it's exactly the kind of thing I'd say oh yeah it's a film about ideas but I'd be wanting to sound clever when I'd say it but not really expect a response from anyone <laughs> or, Andy, right, I'm going to throw this question at you um, because I get this feeling you're not mad keen on this one. Yeah. Oscar Isaacs is amazing, isn't it, isn't he? I think, I think he's very good. Uh, the thing is with this, with this film, I really like all three actors in it mm-hmm. and I think they show us a lot of potential but I don't think it's enough of a character piece for them to really reach the full potential of the performances. So Oscar Isaac, I think, gives probably the best performance there but I think he... He does it more scene by scene. He gives really good performances scene by scene. But for me, they didn't cohere into one great rounded performance. So it felt more like when when the plot needed to shift a little bit, they needed him to be seem approachable or be a bit creepy or be like a megalomaniac. And it felt like he, he did those separately well, but it was it shifted too much to really feel like a a convincing whole to me. Do you not think that's part of his character? That he's all over the place. Yeah, yeah but that kind of that's kind of what I thought was that actually you never know which Nathan you're going to get. Are you going to get the nice one that's going to say dude, or are you going to get the one that's going to? But does he? Do, do you feel like he shifts too abruptly between the the different versions of himself? Or... I don't know because I'm not sure and, if he's entirely there and mentally, is he? You know. Did you feel that? I felt that it, it's probably realistic given like the situation, but. Making him an alcoholic felt like a bit of a cliche and a bit of an easy way to to make those mood swings sort of... I mean, the tortured alcoholic, we've seen it a lot of times, mm. and it, it just felt a bit played out, and especially when they did the let's get him drunk so we can go and fiddle around with his stuff. Yeah, but I got, I got the feeling that I was I not necessarily set up, but he was just willing to go along with it, and then he could snap out of it, at, uh, not necessarily at a moment's notice, but he could really sort of try and pull himself around. Uh, so you think he was deliberately manipulating him mm. by shifting yeah. his character more than he, he actually would? Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Keeping him guessing. Yeah, I think so. Because the whole thing was a test, right? So Yes. Including how he's going to react to Nathan. And yeah. that sort of the big reveal he had in his office kind of thing in that bunker uh in the end was i mean again caught me by surprise with just how much in control he was because there was a lot of creeping around and stuff like that going beforehand now for me this made 
Oscar Isaacs, uh, it, it turned it into a Tom Hardy and a Ryan Gosling for me, as in it wow, he wowed me. He mm. absolutely wowed me. And I thought, right, I'm going to watch anything that guy's in now. Mm. Um, he is brilliant. Yeah. He's brilliant in everything he's in. And then yeah. there is that dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to that. That dance scene in Ex Machina may have been unexpected, but it's not the first time movies have surprised us with a little random shape-throwing. Rachel has been taking a look at some other memorable big-screen boogies. Kyoko. Where's Nathan? Where's Nathan? I told you, you're wasting your time talking to her. However, you would not be wasting your time... If you were dancing with her. When Oscar Isaac's Nathan started dancing with AI Kyoko to Get Down Saturday Night, I found myself going through a number of emotions in quick succession. What started off as embarrassment turned into nervous amusement, then dove straight into full-on disturbed and stayed there for the rest of the film. Rarely has so much been communicated in so little time, but then dance has an uncanny ability to do that. It can reveal far more than we realise, and has been used in many non-dance films for precisely that reason. In Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, Michael Madsen as Mr Blonde was easily as disturbing as Nathan when he danced happily while hacking off the ear of a blood-soaked cop. Despite a pop cover by songstress Louise Redknapp in 2001, I still can't hear Stuck in the Middle without hearing the poor man's muffled screams and remembering every second of that stomach-churning scene. Impromptu dances aren't always distressing, of course. Sometimes they can give you a whole new insight into an actor's abilities. Tom Cruise in Risky Business famously slid across the floor in toweling socks and gave his all to Bob Seger's old-time rock and roll. The scene has been frequently imitated but never bettered and was arguably the first indicator that this young man was destined to be more than just an 80s heartthrob. The 80s was a treasure trove of unexpected dance scenes, including an entire parade's worth of twisting and shouting in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and a spiritually possessed funk to Deo in Beetlejuice. However, two of my favourites come courtesy of John Hughes. After an hour or so, fraught with tension, irritation and revelations, the members of The Breakfast Club finally loosen up together and dance to We Are Not Alone, with varying degrees of abandon. I don't think there was a single girl in my group of friends at school that didn't attempt the arm-shaking-till-you-drop move that left Ali Sheedy in a heap at the end of the song. None of us even attempted to emulate the inherent cool of Molly Ringwald. We just knew we didn't have it in us. If we'd been at that school, we all would have been Alison. Hughes did it again in Pretty in Pink, but this time Molly was too cool to even join in, as Ducky, played by the fabulous and underrated John Cryer, grooved his way around Annie Potts' record shop to try a little tenderness, she looked upon the poor wee mite with total disdain. The rest of us, meanwhile, fell even harder for his loyal little heart and played the song over and over, imagining our own little duck man might just slide across the floor and dance for us. Blaine, Molly, you can keep his non-dancing ass. Squeeze, don't tease Shall we dance? It's good. Yeah? Wait for me. Joyfully out-of-place dance scenes aren't just for the 80s, though. In criminally overlooked romantic comedy Blast from the Past, the hapless Adam, played by an endearing Brendan Fraser, proves himself more than an adequate dancer when he and his cynical friend Eve visit a 40s-themed club and he dances to Mr Zoot Suit with not one but two ladies and with real skill. It's a wake-up call for Eve and a revelation for the unsuspecting film watcher who had never previously envisaged George of the Jungle could move so well. Brendan 
Fraser wasn't the only revelation in the 90s when it came to dancing. Although I already knew Catherine Zeta-Jones was a trained dancer, I didn't know that Antonio Banderas was also an accomplished mover. Their skills were fully revealed in a sizzling dance scene in The Mask of Zorro, which left more than just the two of them a little hot under the collar. Any doubts about the chemistry between the couple were put to rest as they mashed up a flamenco and a tango to Malaguena. The story used this moment to cement the relationship between the two, show the rebellious side of Catherine's character and the recklessness of the new Zorro. All this in a two-minute dance sequence. Dora is a very spirited dancer. Spirited. Thank you for putting it so delicately. Of course, not all actors are good dancers, but this can sometimes be a virtue. In Love Actually, Hugh Grant's British Prime Minister jigs around Downing Street in full-on embarrassing dad mode. But it's by far my favourite bit of the film. Who hasn't made a total ass of themselves dancing around to the radio? Especially when you're feeling uncommonly happy and you just want to express it. There's something endlessly endearing and completely joyful about someone who can't dance and self-consciously dancing their heart out. Most unexpected dance scenes exist to strengthen narrative or add depth to character. Otherwise, they're for pure joy. However, just every now and then, a dancing sneaks in that is a game-changer. For me, the best example of this is John Hedder's simply astonishing dance to Canned Heat in Napoleon Dynamite. We see the precursor to this scene when Napoleon meets his brother's girlfriend, LaFonda, and she gives him a tape of music. Although he's practising dance moves in his bedroom, judging by his somewhat skewed view of his own artistic ability... I think the majority of the audience could only imagine the same would go for his dancing skills. When his best friend Pedro stands for class president, Napoleon is suddenly faced with having to perform an impromptu skit in support of him. As canned heat starts, Napoleon stands unmoving on a stage in front of the entire school. There's a sense that either something awful or something brilliant is about to happen. Thankfully, Napoleon throws everything he has at the dance and it's a triumph. This is a breakthrough moment not only for him, but for the rest of the school, who've dismissed him as nothing more than a weirdo, possibly for years. What we should learn from unexpected dance sequences is that actually, there's nothing stopping us from just cutting loose. Whether we're a Hugh Grant, Tom Cruise, or a Catherine Zeta-Jones, we all have our very own dance. Cringeworthy, crazy, joyful, maybe even game-changing. And one day, when the music takes us, we might just let it go. Thanks for that, Rachel. Now, I'm assuming this is just one big settle for me to do my Breakfast Club 80s dance, is it? <laughs> of course. That's what I was expecting. Come on. No. <laughs> Podcast, they can't see it. What else am I going to bring to the table there? I think... Would we also say that maybe the dance in the end of Little Miss Sunshine? Yes. I nearly <laughs> went into my feature because I it? love that dance. Yeah. See, I'm pleased you didn't because now it makes me look a bit smarter for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's good because it's not right at the end. What I hate is... How mainly animated films now all end with everyone just starts dancing. Everything has to have a dance off at the end. I think it was Shrek that really sort yeah. of started it. And I'm just going to throw a very air of caution. Just you know, the mood of, uh, that we've got, and the, which I think is it's funny the mood that's been created around this podcast very similar to the mood that's created around the X Machina between the three characters in there. And I'm just <laughs> going to throw a bit of a warning of caution and say. If you're going to start slagging off Paddington 2, <laughs> then we really are in some kind of trouble here. No, it's all right. Ooh, burn. So that's, that's enough, <laughs> isn't it? That's enough. Is it? I, I see you're rageous. It's gone all, it's gone all it awkward. In. Hold it in. Right. Do you, you know what? Let's just go full on and talk about the end, shall we? 
Think we have oh, no, 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 hang oh, on, hang oh, on, no, oh, no, 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 it's the Thanks, gun gonna interrupt us. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. very, very important, very important, I wrote this down, and I've just turned the page, this is why I've written it now, the fourth character that gets overlooked, people say this is a three-hander. I was about to say, Kyoko, <laughs> um, and how important she was as a fourth character, and how she is overlooked, um, because she's actually quite integral to what happens. I can't remember if I knew from the beginning that she was a robot too, because We've seen Ava and she is, with her VFX, she has got her her inner showing and everything else and her head has this thing at the back and she doesn't have hair. And she is supposed to be the pinnacle. So we shouldn't think, and I don't know if I did or not, we shouldn't think that Kyoko is a robot too because she has skin and hair and everything else. So should we be thinking, and I can't remember if I did, <laughs> but should we be thinking that she is a servant in the house that he's just like, or a, an escort or a paid prostitute or whatever? Or should we know from the beginning that, oh, she's a bit odd, she's clearly a robot? Because when she starts peeling herself, mm-hmm. are we supposed to be going, oh, I don't know. Yeah, Can anyone enlighten me? But that was supposed to be a surprise. I've seen I it three times. Can you remember how you now, were the first and I time? Think that, I think the first time I did what I was talking about earlier, when she turned up, I thought, is she a robot? Right. So I wasn't sure, but, but you were I thought, well... It. Because of the way these things always play out, yeah, yeah. it's like like watching Blade Runner and thinking, yeah. who's a robot and who isn't. Yeah. So when anyone reveals that they are, unless they've done some very good sort of sleight of hand, you're not going to be particularly surprised. Mm. Although, Paul, did you just say you were surprised by yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, because I, it, I, think, I think, you know, I, you know my mentality by now. I just get sucked into things and convinced by anyone. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's good, though. It's done its job, hasn't it, then? Well, it is good, but unless you, you, away from watching TV and stuff like that, I just, I'm, I'm incredibly easy to sell to, for example. If I go and buy a new fridge freezer, I've, if, if a good salesperson comes along, I kind of just go with it yeah. because I think, oh, I appreciate what they're doing. I think, yeah, you're really good at this. <laughs> Right, you got more. You got more. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even ask for the one on display for a discount or anything like that. I said, yeah, yeah, right, okay, you know. And that, I think that's my personality here, and that's that's true because I was like Caleb. I think I was sucked in. I was mm. like, yeah, yeah, they're going to defeat this guy, run off, and live happily ever after. Mm. And yeah, I, th- I think I, d- I, I did just sort of take it that she was, you know, sort of maybe a, a partner or you know, like like yeah. you said, you know, or a housekeeper or something like that. But I, I, I think initially definitely thought she was human. I was surprised yeah. when she started peeling skin off. I, one thing I like is is the kind of moral moral ambiguity in there. And I was thinking, if you look at it, who do you think is the baddie, or is there even a baddie there? Mm-hmm. Given that that they are artificial intelligences, is Nathan really a baddie? Did you did you feel good when he got killed or? Or is Ava a baddie, and is it possible mm. for her to even even be the baddie? Yeah, it's his creation. He created the problem. So it's and I did. I I felt that he was uh, the baddie, and I did. I did feel relieved. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for also using my rudimentary terminology, Paul. It's, it makes it's understandable, isn't it? Better. I think we always like to talk in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah. baddies, baddies, yeah. baddie. Yeah, so I, I instinct instinctively felt that. Yeah. Yeah. Did they take any pleasure in stabbing him? Which they didn't actually look like they did. It looked no. quite mechanical, mm, it didn't a it? Way yeah. to achieve I mean, even, an objective. Even, yeah, even the way. Although Ava twisted hers, uh. which causes pain. She didn't need to twist it. So there was a little bit of me. Why she twist it? Had she learned that from his sort of sadistic well, treatment of them? Though is it a learned behaviour? Exactly. It's it's really really tricky. I didn't see him necessarily as a baddie. I think it's more ambiguous than that. Um, I think the only person who wasn't sort of was more clear was Caleb. As all his actions came from a from a point of wanting to help, 
you know, he didn't do anything selfish. And and the way he ended up, I'm still angry about it. And because it's really unfair and really unjust. Okay, well, let let me let me help you out here because earlier on, (laughs) earlier on, I said I'm going to blow this whole thing up. Oh yes, you did. Right. While they were in that that what was it like an office area? Was it? It seemed officey, didn't it? It did seem officey. While they were in there, they could breathe, right? Yeah. Ventilation shaft. It's a classic. What? <gasps> of course, yes. there's a ventilation shaft. What? Oh, of course, because how else is he going to get in there? Yeah, he's going to get out, isn't he? I've blown it apart. Yeah, oh, there we go. Look at that. Yeah. What a gift. And, and he's two hours away from civilization, so all he'll do is build a little house in Norway and just live out the rest of his days. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a voice of reason, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. See. <laughs> oh dear, but one thing. I mean, before that, is there, is there, is there, they sort of entered their big sort of argument scene if you like and there's a better word than argument scene but again we all know what we're talking about <laughs> that creep, the creeping around he did while he got him drunk <gasps> that puts me on edge oh, so much I was thinking of you bro actually because <laughs> I, I know how you bear it did you fast forward I or did you set it out absolutely can't bear it no I didn't fast forward this one no oh I probably got up and started pacing the room <laughs> it's just anyone doing that kind of thing while someone else is oh we're about to get him we're going to come through mm. the door where's my pass I don't know what's going on and he's there just creeping through was he looking through a file looking through a bit of paper oh yeah oh, that's the worst oh, no. or if someone's, down, if someone's downloading a, a something off a computer oh, and it's like yeah, loading yeah. loading 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 like oh god 98% 100% yeah. <laughs> no, such, no such thing as 100% with those things is there no, no such thing no. if it's 100% it's done that's it it just stops doesn't it <laughs> Don't ever watch Rear Window. There's a scene in that you're like, oh, it's really, really tense. Rear Window is that? Am I, Andy? Am I likely to watch Rear Window? Uh, I think, given how you enjoyed Vertigo, yeah, yeah maybe ah, you would. Right, okay. It's not a recommendation. Well, no, <laughs> no, hey, hey, we might put it on the list. In hey. fact, might we? In fact, did you see what happened there? You said, "Don't ever watch Rear Window," and Paul oh, went, "Oh, Rear Window." That's <laughs> true. Mm, I'm, reverse I'm, psychology. I'm so. Andy, you you said the ending. Pick up on what you said earlier. Did you, did you use the word ridiculous? I, th- I thought, just thought it was a bit silly. It, I mean, it's, silly. it it turned it becomes a bit it, like a slasher film to me. That the whole kind of escape. I think Alex Garland has written. He wrote Twenty Eight Days Later, didn't he, and things like that. And yeah. it becomes it's such a sharp turn into into horrific that it it kind of it sat badly with me for how philosophical the rest of it was. <laughs> I didn't seem out of place to me at the time, but when now we're sat here talking about it. Like, mm. Well, it's easy for me to say that, but you, you do need to end your film some way, don't you? So yeah. I, I don't know what I would have suggested as a better <laughs> ending. I was just about to say, what would you suggest? See you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's move on to the scale, shall we? Let's. Okay, right. Now, as this film was set in Norway, is Ex Machina... Yes, I'd happily watch this film on a plane to Norway, provided no one else would look, could look over my shoulder while the lady nudie bits are on and think the worst of me. Because that'd be really embarrassing. People, it would. Do, people do do that on planes, don't they? they do. Often so people, you see people on Twitter, oh, just watch this on a plane. You think, well, I've seen that and there's nudie bits in it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just that's going to be the point someone brings you a drink or Always. Or Always. A, 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 a young child walks past on mm. the way to the toilet, isn't it? You yeah. think, oh, pointing boobies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How could they? Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't. Oh, no. Right. Down with that sort of thing. So is it that, or is it to revive an old Timmy Mallet joke from Wackaday circa 1986? <laughs> There's no way I'm watching that rubbish again. <laughs> well, I've, I'm neither really because yeah, I've, I've watched it. Fence. I've watched it three times. Well, so that's that's me, budge me off. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm middle ground. It's I don't think it's bad, but it's, 
I'm, I won't watch it again. No, I don't think. So on the flight to Norway, <laughs> you're going to be saying Norway, and then watch something else. I watch with. something, yeah, with less boobs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, that's clear. Um, I would be on the flight to Norway. I'd probably watch it, but I'd probably fast forward the nudie bits. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I, I like some of it. <laughs> and then I'd have my little dream about Caleb escaping through the air. It's not just the nudie bits, is it? I mean, someone was getting stabbed at that point, as well I as a little child walking past. You have to be really careful, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you really do. And with that, dear listener, <laughs> it's time to say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for streaming and downloading in your ever-increasing numbers. And now we'll leave you with the genial Andy Goulding. The deus ex machina was a device used often in ancient Greek drama in which an unlikely, convenient event would help keep the balance of karma. The hero escaped insurmountable odds through a sudden divine intervention or some other intrusion that previously the playwright neglected to mention. A stray lightning bolt or a ravenous ape to a struggling writer seemed tempting for removing the blot in the way of the plot without suitable context preempting. The audience cheering the villain's demise sought only the triumph of good and never asked, where did that monster come from? Or, what was the cause of that flood? Centuries later, this contract still thrived, and in trash cinema that is lacking a decent director or a talented scribe, you'll still find the deus ex machina. But the form it now takes is a lot less high stakes, and the currently popular trend is to round off a plot, whether finished or not, with a big dance-off tacked on the end. The action's cut short by a popular song and a mawkishly cute dance routine. It used to take gods to derail a plot, not a chorus of Come on Eileen. While a deus ex machina never rang true, the new way feels even more hokey when a villain is swerved from the evil he served by a session of light karaoke. But a plainly ridiculous narrative tool has devolved into one even plainer. The deus ex machina ceded the throne and was stuck with deus ex macarena. Awful tough lately Smoking a lot of cigarettes lately But inside It's just a little baby Oh You've been listening to Spoiler Hosted by me, Paul Tyler With Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher You're vulnerable You're vulnerable You are not a if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us, share links to our show, or write us a nice review on iTunes. Yes, if you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Next time on Spoiler, we're watching Ken Loach's 2016 multi-award winning drama, I, Daniel Blake. There's a special number if you've been diagnosed as dyslexic. Right, well, can you give us that? Because we computer as I'm dyslexic. You'll find it online, sir. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and it's a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln. Yes,